following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. A couple years ago, uh, I was at a, a conference um, ministry conference sort of thing, and I, I happened to run into a couple of my church planting friends, um, and we got to talking about, you know, how things are going, and, and it's always kind of like a, it, it's like a contest, it feels like sometimes, like, I don't know if you get this with your peers, where you're like, oh yeah, life's so great, life's so good, everything, well, I was at a point where things weren't great, things weren't good, uh, it, I was in the middle of a really tough season, and as we were talking, it, it took a lot of restraint to like, you know, fib a little bit. And just be honest and say, guys, I'm, I'm in a tough spot. I was going through a couple things. I had some health issues that we hadn't yet found answers for. Um, it seemed that the, the church, um, it wasn't going well. It seems like on a good day, we take one step forward and a step back. And, and on a bad day, it would be one step forward and then three steps back. It's what it felt like. Things weren't trending in the right direction. I was exhausted. I was struggling. I was discouraged. I was probably irritated with God. And I remember in the middle of that conversation, I just kind of was like, if church planting is God's primary strategy for advancing the gospel, which it is, why is it so hard? Why does he make this thing that's good, has good intentions of reaching people and telling people about Jesus and doing life together and getting in and deeper and deeper into the gospel, why is it so stinking hard? Now, some of you have been around Sacred City long enough to know. You, you've shared these hardships with me. The reality is that real gospel ministry isn't easy. 
It's not putting together this production and putting up fog machines and cool graphics. That's not what real ministry looks like. Real ministry happens in the trenches of life. It's tough, it's grueling, and it's slow work. Now, I should not have been surprised. <laughs> I read the books. I read the books about church planting. I read the books about ministry that said, this is going to be the hardest thing that you'll ever do with your life. By the way, this might sound like I'm about ready to resign. I'm not resigning. I just want to clear the air. I'm not resigning here. That's not what this is. <laughs> but I read the books. It says it's the hardest thing. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was an arrogant 28-year-old, though. It's like, I'm pretty sure I'll be the exception. Like, there's something special about me. I just feel it. Like, not that it's going to be, not that it's going to be like this epic church plant and sweet adventure, everything always. I knew that there would be setbacks. I knew that, I thought, though, that maybe there'd just be this steady up and to the right. You know, a little bit blip here and there, but just steady. And I thought, after all, yeah, and I think that we do this too, that, that when we feel like we're doing the right thing, we're doing right by God, we're doing what God calls us to do, and we face these challenges, and we, we're puzzled about this, like, why is this so hard? Why am I facing the, this sort of hardship, these difficulties, especially if I'm listening to God? Now, the only problem with that logic is the Bible. It is, because that's... Clearly, you start in Genesis and you go to Revelation, that's not how God works. If I would have spent a little bit more time in the book of Acts, if I would have hunkered down in Galatians chapter 1 or spent time in Colossians or looked at Philippians chapter 3 or, or even honed in here on, on 2 Corinthians 11, I would have picked up on what this path is going to look like in gospel ministry. In fact, Paul here in the 2 Corinthians 11 passage, he talks about the hardships that he faces. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So like 40 lashes is like a death sentence. But here they are, they're pushing him just to the brink of death, but stopping right at the last minute. 40, or five times that happened. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If I would have just paid attention to Paul's ministry, that would have recalibrated some of my expectations. Because Paul's whole ministry was a ministry of suffering. That's what he did. And we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We've been going verse by verse, kind of meandering our way through here. We've made it to chapter 3. And the book of Ephesians is this super dense, theologically rich, beautiful letter that's been written to the church in Ephesus. And Paul talks about, listen, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is who God has made you to be. When he's called you out of darkness into light, when he saved you from death and brought you into life in Christ, he did all of these miraculous things. Incredible, unbelievable. In fact, he talks about it being a, mis a mystery here. 
He's talking about all of this great stuff, and he's, he's teaching them to like going deeper and deeper into their understanding in the gospel. And halfway through the book of Ephesians, like think of this, halfway through a letter that he's writing to some of his pals, he stops and says, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm in prison. Just so you know, just a heads up, this letter comes to you from a prison cell. And when Paul is writing here, all of these glorious truths, the context where these are being written are the context of a nasty jail cell. He's in a season of suffering. Now, we're going to take a look at this specifically with Paul. What, what, like Paul and his suffering and, and what he's uh, talking about here in, in, in these 13 verses. And, and there's three things that I want to show you this morning. First, I want to show you the unique reason why Paul suffers. Second, Paul's attitude in suffering. How does he think about it? How does he, how does he interact with it? And third, what his suffering accomplished. I think that if we take a look at Paul, if we examine his sufferings and what God did through his sufferings and understand what's going on, we might stop pouting, like I did when I was talking to my buddies, pouting about the hardships that we face. We might stop saying, I deserve better. And instead, we might learn how to welcome it, actually to view suffering as a gift from God. Now, the bookends of this passage, in verse 1 and in verse 13, Paul acknowledges his current reality. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't make it sound all chummy. There's no rosy lenses here. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. He said that in verse 1, and in verse 13, he's saying, I'm suffering. I'm a prisoner for Christ, I'm suffering, I'm in distress. Now, scholars place Paul here as he's writing this letter in a jail cell in Rome. And I don't know, jail's never really like a, a luxury. Um, you don't go for a vacation. And modern-day jails seem to be pretty okay, like as far as like cleanliness. I don't know. I've never been there. I can't speak out of experience. But there's some, some we've come a long way from where things were like in the first century. Because Paul here is in a, a prison that's underground. He's probably chained um, at least to a wall, if not to other people. And so he has this sort of chain gang thing going on. It's a filthy place, poor ventilation. And think about it, the 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 degree of hygiene that just was completely neglected. Sitting there in waste, in the smell, poor ventilation, there's rodents, all kinds of creatures that you wouldn't want. Food is sparse, you're cut off from your friends. Like there, There's just this really, it's easy to see why this is suffering for Paul. As he says, I'm in prison, I'm suffering. But the question is, what landed him, what landed him there in prison? Now, unlike the other prisoners who were his peers, Paul didn't commit any kind of a crime, at least not a moral or civic crime that would actually be punishable. There's a lot of misrepresentation about what lying and deception that took place to get Paul thrown into jail. And typically, it was coming from religious leaders, if not the religious leaders, the political leaders of that day. They were threatened by Paul, and so they would do stuff to throw him to jail. The reason why Paul is in prison is for preaching the gospel of grace. 
The reason Paul is chained up is because he has committed himself to making known the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus. He says it in verse 6. He's talking about the mystery of Christ, making it known to all people. Look at the verse 6 here. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So God is basically, he's adopting this family. So it's no longer just the Jews that God is concerned about. It's all people that come to him. God is bringing in. So the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul says, listen, I'm in prison because I'm preaching. Now, last week we dug into this mystery that, that he talks about. Six times he talks about a mystery, this mystery that's hidden for ages now revealed. Now, if you weren't with us, we talked about, that was pretty much all we talked about last week, about the mystery of Christ. I suggest going back and catching up through that. But, but in short, just for the purposes of moving on, the mystery is this, that God is redeeming and restoring all things through Jesus Christ. In other words, God is setting right all of the wrongs that have transpired because of sin entering to the world, and he is creating a new world, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, where all of the glory that was intended to be present in creation remains there with God for eternity. And this redeeming work that God is doing through the cosmos begins by redeeming sinners to God and to one another. There's this vertical uh, reconciliation that happens between God. There's trust. There's faith. We're made right with God. We heard this this morning in the confession, the absolution. We are made right with God. And then there's this overflow that happens in the horizontal where the, the, the dividing walls of hostility are tumbled down to the ground. And we see this diverse family. Like that's what Christians, that's what the church is. It's this diverse family of, of different, uh, different demographic, demographics represented. And the one common thread that everybody shares is that you've been bought with a price. That Jesus gave his life to save those folks. This is the big picture of salvation the Bible offers. It's not just a matter of getting to heaven. But this overarching reconciliation of, of the world with God, with one another. It's a gift of grace that's given by faith that's not earned. So Paul says, listen, I'm, pre I'm preaching the gospel. I'm in prison because I'm preaching. Notice he's not saying I'm in prison because I believed the gospel. Paul could have kept this Jesus stuff to himself. right? He, he, didn't, he could have received the gospel of grace this is mine now, hunker down, put his head down, because he's heaven bound. Hide himself away. St stay away from any difficulties that could come. Like, that's what he could have done, but he didn't, he didn't do that. It's incomprehensible to Paul. Because the gospel is too good to be kept under wraps. Paul sees that. It's too big, it's too glorious, it's too wonderful to keep to yourself. He had a compulsion to talk about it. Just like you do with your favorite restaurant. You go to a new restaurant, it's like, this place is the best. I had a burger this weekend that changed my life. 
And I've told everybody about it so far. It's like that. You're experiencing something so wonderful, you just can't help but to talk about it no matter what, no matter what the cost. This grace was just lavished on Paul. But he had this awareness that was lavished upon him so that it could be lavished upon other people. He says this in verse 2. Look at this. He says, for this reason, I'm a prisoner of Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, so that, that's something in itself. On behalf of you, I'm here. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Do you see that? It was given to him for them. Paul sees himself as a conduit of God's grace. That this grace has come to him not as a resting place, but as a channel. Something that just flows through. Grace was given to him for them. But he's not just a steward of this grace who kind of passes it along as he ought to. He doesn't divvy out grace at his own discretion. He says in verse 7 that he's a minister of the gospel. Now, this word minister in the Greek is diakonos, which means servant. You can translate it to servant. Um, He says, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of the gospel. He's he's acknowledging there's something over him that's compelling him, that's that's calling him to do what he's doing. In in other places in the New Testament, he he actually uses stronger language. He uses the word doulos, which means slave. He says, I'm a slave to Christ. I am under Christ's authority, and I've been commanded. That's why he says this, this ministry has been given to him. He's been called to this action. Paul was enlisted in God's rescue plan, And he sees that in his life, it's Jesus' cause. It's Jesus' mission over his own. And as a servant, he sets aside all of his rights for the sake of serving another. Now, ultimately, when Paul does this, when when he lives this lifestyle uh, and the identity of a servant of the gospel, he's serving both Jesus in honoring Christ, but he's also serving the Ephesians. He's also he's serving us. He, he's, he's got his audience in mind, that I'm pleasing Jesus, but it's also for you. It's for your good. It's for your edification. Paul has been saved by grace so that God could work through him in order to save thousands and if not thousands, millions, and if not millions, billions of people through Paul's ministry. There's this ripple effect in Paul. In his sufferings, there's this ripple effect that happens that other people kind of get in on it. See, God saved Paul in order to save more people. And if you're in Christ, if God has saved you, the same is true of your life. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't, how, I'm not a like, I can't be a pastor. I'm not a church planner. I'm not a minister. I don't even know what it looks like to be a, a servant of a God. Like, I don't know how to do that. That's, that's too high of a calling for me. But listen, this is an identity that everyone in Christ has. We are to serve Christ, a servant of the gospel. The good news here is that this role isn't really dependent upon your capabilities. It's not dependent upon you being an all-star, a super Christian, a super evangelist. It's not. Paul even says this. He's like, I've been given this ministry, and guess what? I'm the least of the apostles. 
He, he had this humility of himself, like, okay, in all actuality, there are a lot of giftings that, that Paul had that God definitely used, okay? But he sees himself in the sense that, man, I'm humble. God has chosen me the least of the apostles to do this work of the ministry. And God was pleased to do it. Listen, it says that God is pleased to use the weak to show up the strong. God is pleased to use what is foolish to shame the wise. See, this is what Paul's talking about. God, God's using just, it's like, who am I? What am I? What am I? But God chooses him. He uses him. And so out of this awareness of the gospel, just like what God has done to, to save him and how God wants to use him, Paul is both compelled, he's commanded and compelled by God, but he's also delighted to do this. Actually, Paul is super pleased that he would get to step into this hardship. Now, you think such a positive message about the gospel, right? The fact that God is redeeming and reconciling the world and anybody can get in on it if they come to Jesus and, and cling to him in faith. You think that that would be a, okay, sign me up. But that's not how it works. Still not how it works. Paul faces hostility because he is in a world that is hostile towards God. That's hostile towards those who love God. And it's because of that that Paul suffers. This is a uniquely Christian kind of suffering. That only Christians can suffer in this capacity. There are countless things that we can suffer in life. Um, I know a, a lot of you and know that many of those things have materialized here in this congregation. Most of these things that we suffer are unchosen. It's a product of living in a fallen world, a broken world. Um, things like illness, death, depression, Betrayal, racial injustice, poverty. Like these are things that we can suffer in this world. And the Bible, thankfully, offers us comfort in the midst of those sufferings, gives us a hope, gives us a buoyancy to, to allevi alleviate some of, of the pain and the loneliness and all of those things that just make suffering so difficult to face. But, but the Bible also gives us keys on how to alleviate these, these unjust sufferings that we can face in this world. But this kind of suffering that Paul faces is a suffering that he signs up for. It's, it's not forced upon him. It's not unchosen. He, he, he chooses to step into this. Now, it's not that Paul goes looking to suffer. Like, he, he's not a masochist. He's not out to just, like, you know, like, somebody want to whack me with rods today? I would really like to be whacked with rods. He's not after that. But when it comes, when this hardship comes, he's, he's okay with it. And one of the core messages of Paul throughout all of his writings in the New Testament that is if you take Jesus seriously, suffering will come. If Jesus is really the foundation of your life, suffering will chase you down just as it had chased down Paul. And this isn't new. This isn't a new phenomenon. Jesus says this in Matthew 23. that He says that the world will hate his disciples on account of him. 
There's this reality. And in fact, Paul, when he's writing to a younger pastor, Timothy, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. If you're a Christian, suffering will come. You will, if you take Jesus seriously, you will suffer for Jesus in some kind of capacity. Now, this does not mean it's going to be like the extreme end of persecution, like Paul as he's sitting in a jail cell. But there are many other ways that we can be persecuted, that we can suffer for the name of Jesus. Some of those that we're experiencing as, as we live in a culture that's turning more and more secular, right, seeing any kind of religion, not just Christianity, but, but especially Christianity as bigoted and narrow-minded and just this, this sort of uh, religiosity, rule-following life suck will be ostracized, will be ridiculed by peers, will be misrepresented in our culture. I mean, show me a television show that portrays a, a, a loving, Jesus-honoring human being. There's not one. Not that I know of. Not in a winsome way. The problem with that is like severe underrepresentation of the Christians that I know. The culture portrays narrow-minded. They'll slander us. They'll, they'll at least make it so we're misunderstood. So there's that. But then there's this other aspect of suffering. Like, if you take Jesus seriously and, and he you open up your life to Jesus, he's gonna open up your life to others. That's what's gonna happen, inevitably. You, which means you're, you're probably gonna open up like your relational bandwidth. There's gonna be an energy drain of investing in people and discipling people. There, there's gonna be difficulties. Like the energy, pure, straight up, it's gonna be challenging. To open up your home, if you're an MC leader and you're hosting an MC in your home week in and week out, having 15, 20 people coming through your home, that, that's, a, that's a, a form of suffering. There's something that's required of you to do that. And for us to open up our homes and have strangers in and share meals and, and hear what God is doing in their life and minister, like that, all of that stuff takes time to live generously, right? If, if you're someone who is generous, biblically generous, tithing, giving to the mission of God, you're not just generous towards the church, but you, you find and pray for, seek out opportunities to bless other people with whatever resources God has begun. That's going to require something of you. That's a form of, of suffering because that means you're sacrificing your comfort, your wants, your longings, your mission for that of Jesus's. And oftentimes we do this and you can feel taken advantage of, you invest in somebody for years and years, and there's some kind of betrayal that happens. It hurts. There's a weariness. I mean, there's a weariness of, of doing church planting, of doing ministry the way that we do ministry. Fatigue and pain, all of this stuff. We all, you look at Paul and you see it in his ministry, and, and, and part, it's both comforting and disheartening to say it's happening right here as we do ministry the way, in the way of Christ and the apostles. Like, this is what, what suffering for Christ looks like. Now, interesting here, when we get to the, Paul's attitude towards suffering, he's talking about suffering. 
His goal in chapter three is not to teach us how to avoid suffering. He's not like, okay, guys, uh, here's what happened to me. Here's how I landed up in jail. You just stay, instead of saying this, say this. Instead of going to this place, go to there. You can avoid it. He's not at all interested in helping people avoid suffering. Now, this is counterintuitive because like, we're conditioned. We have reflexes that when you feel pain, you recoil. Like It's kind of built into your body. Say, hey, oh, that's not good. Don't do that. Don't touch the hot stove. So we're conditioned to pull away both physically and in some, like, relationally, spiritually, just in life in general. Hardship, let me, let me back out. Because we have this mindset as a culture that suffering and happiness are antithetical to one another. They can't coexist. That if you're suffering, you cannot be happy. And, and in fact, some people will look in and say, if you're suffering, it's an indicator that, man, you're cursed. Like something's wrong with you. You're doing something wrong. You're making bad decisions. You're a dummy. Whatever it is. Say, you're the problem because of your suffering. And because of this, there's all kinds of things that sort of like pump into this. Like you, get, you go to Barnes & Noble, And there's just all kinds of self-help books about how you can make wise decisions to avoid conflict. There's all kinds of, here's how you make your life easy. Or even like prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes, there it is. Preachers who are, who are cranking out these, this false gospel of God wants you to be happy and, and, and rich and blessed and, and healthy and all of this stuff. And like, if you're, if you're not that, then you're, something's wrong with you. Like that's this prosperity gospel that like gets cranked out. Here's how to avoid hardships because what we want is a happy life. That's what we want. And to get a happy life, we have to, to get a happy life, we have to avoid suffering. I came across this, um, this is in Tim Keller's book on pain and suffering. He says, the problem is that contemporary people think life is all about finding happiness. We decide what conditions will make us happy, and then we work to make those conditions come about. To live for happiness means that you are trying to get something out of life. But when suffering comes along, which it will, it takes the conditions for happiness away. And so suffering destroys all your reason to keep living. But to live for meaning means not that you try to get something out of life, but rather that life expects something from us. In other words, you have meaning only when there is something in life more important than your own personal freedom and happiness, something for which you are glad to sacrifice your happiness. I think he's onto something here. If you want to live a meaningful life, it means that it will be marked by suffering. And Paul gets this. And, and as Paul lives his life, I'm sure the words of, of the Savior from Matthew chapter 5 that says, Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of me. This informs Paul's attitude about suffering. And guess what? He's, he, he leans into the blessedness. He sees that there is something about suffering that brings honor and glory. And so he embraces it. 
And in fact, he, he says, listen, while I'm suffering, I don't want you to lose heart either, Ephesians, because it would be easy for them to say, hey, our leader, he, he's, he's locked up. He, he can't do anything. And so they're like, well, we've got to find a new leader. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't lose heart. Verse 13 says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It says, don't recoil, don't pull back, don't compromise on your convictions. Lean into your suffering, and here's what happens. Suffering takes us deeper into the gospel in a way that nothing else can accomplish. If you've gone through a hardship, and you've, you've come to the point in your life, man, the only thing that I can really count on right now is Jesus. That changes you. That, that brings you into the gospel in a way that nothing else can. It's a unique phenomenon that happens in suffering. Now, that could be true that suffering, as you could say, the same, the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay, right? There's, there's a way that your, your heart, when you face suffering, you shake your fist at God, say, I don't deserve this, and your heart gets harder. But, but if you're open to Jesus, it softens us. It takes us deeper. Verse 12, it's in the midst of suffering that Jesus gives boldness and confidence because we have access to the Father. It says, in suffering we find a special kind of grace. There's a, a power. See, Paul talks about this ministry that was given to him. He talks, it was done by the power, but it's also the power of God that sustains his ministry. That as he's there facing hardships, that the, the gospel empowers him. In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about how it's in his weakness where Jesus is strong. Romans 8 says it's where we are weak and in need that the Spirit steps in to help us. There is something available to us in the midst of suffering that we do good to grab onto. And it's because of this, because of this transformational thing that happens in the midst of suffering, Paul says in verse 13, listen, there's glory in suffering. This is his attitude. He, he doesn't look at, at suffering as something to be avoided. It's something to embrace and to revel in. There's a glory. He says it's for your glory because suffering for Jesus can accomplish so much. See, that's the ultimate, like when Keller was talking about the meaningful life, right? This is the most meaningful thing that you can do with your life is to suffer for Jesus because it brings us to this greater degree of trust and dependence, deepen intimacy with Jesus. Suffering plunges us into the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, that's a great thing to hold on to in the midst of suffering, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That means that there's never not a moment in the midst of suffering where the gospel, where Jesus doesn't have something for you. Charles Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me onto the rock of ages. See, that suffering that he experienced. Paul, he's got this. He, he learns to appreciate it, to, to even see it as a gift from God, that, that God is trying to accomplish something. But it's also for the good and for the benefit of other people, that, that they would be saved, right? Paul says, I'm suffering for you so that you could know. So the mystery would be open, that the secret would be an open secret. 
Suffering doesn't hinder gospel advance. And you think, looking at Paul, how in the world can he be so successful if he's locked up? Like, how can the gospel move forward if he's locked up? Well, guess what? Suffering doesn't hinder gospel advance. Suffering is the primary vehicle for gospel advance. Our momentary suffering can alleviate someone's eternal suffering. Romans 8, Paul talks about this, this momentary suffering that we face, man, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth looking at and holding side by side to the glory that's to come when we, he says that if you suffer with Christ, you'll be raised with Christ. You'll be in glory with Christ. You can't even compare the two. The glory that's to come, the future glory far outweighs whatever Paul faces, whatever you and I face. And Paul knew this, and he knew that whenever suffering came, God had a purpose for it. Now, an example of this, just real quickly, is in Acts chapter 16. Paul's in jail again, (laughs) hanging out in jail. And as he's in jail, he's with some of his brothers, and they've made this habit of, of praying together, of singing hymns together. And the Philippian jailer who's there is just fed up with it, you know. And an earthquake comes, and, and, and literally it's like God opened up the prison doors, and Paul and his buddies could have gotten out. But what happens instead is they stay put. God gave them an out. This is something to be said about suffering. God gave them an out, yet they still remained. And, and as they remained... The jailer kind of wakes up. He kind of got knocked unconscious. And, and he thinks all the prisoners have escaped. And he knows that if the prisoners have escaped, that's the end of his job and probably the end of his life. It will be because the next thing he does, he picks up a sword. He's about to ram it through himself. He, he would rather do that than face the consequences that are inevitably going to come. But when he looks up, Paul stops him and says, listen, we, we haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. You don't have to do that. And what happens, this guy goes, oh my gosh, what is it? What, what is this about the gospel that would make you stay put when you had the ability to go? And they tell him about Jesus. He puts his trust in Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He goes home and tells his family about Jesus. Right? And, and here is a pathway for the gospel to get into the, the Greek world, right? Prestigious soldier, military. And guess what he's telling his people? He's telling his family, he's telling his coworkers about the grace of Jesus that he experienced. See, it's in the joy of suffering, which seems like an oxymoron, the joyful suffering of church planting, the joyful suffering of, of doing life, of living in submission to Jesus, that people come to know the real Jesus. You've you got to see this. Sacred city exists because people suffered for you. Sacred city exists because people prayed, people gave, people sacrificed to make this what it is. And if we have the gospel eyes to see, every sacrifice, every bit of suffering, every bit of agony is worth it. Even if only one person has come to know Jesus, but praise God, He's been doing a lot of really good gospel work. That over the last four years, we've got to, to baptize a, several handfuls of people. We see parents raising up kids in a way. We see people who have been in their church the whole life going deeper and deeper into the gospel. God is doing good gospel work here as we suffer for the name of Christ. And what we have to realize is that Christians 
have a heritage of suffering for glory. It's in our DNA. This week I pulled out um, Fox's Book of Martyrs from my bookshelf. It's, It's literally, it's a super thick book. Stories of numerous people who had suffered for Christ and ultimately gave up their life to make Jesus known. We stand on the shoulders of faithful men and women who suffered for Jesus so that we would know who Jesus is. And all of these people were willing to suffer because they knew that Jesus had suffered for them. That Jesus took on the wrath of God that us sinners deserve to take upon ourselves. Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna stand in your place. The ultimate suffering, the eternal suffering that's coming your way, Jesus takes it upon himself. He absorbs it on the cross. And we see the agony of this. But this, listen, it's not just the cross. Jesus was humiliated. He was ran out of his hometown. He was betrayed by some of his closest friends. Peter, who, who was the, the disciple, said, Jesus, I'll never betray you. Guess what he did like four hours later? Judas, that guy, screw him. You know, like, all of this stuff. Jesus ran out of town, people out for his life. The religious leaders hated him. Like, all of this stuff. Jesus suffered, and he did it, and it kind of comes to this culmination at the cross where the agony, the just unbearable agony, crushes him. The suffering servant that the, the, the prophet Isaiah spoke of, it's fulfilled in Jesus here. See, he says, by his wounds, we are healed. It's by the blood of Jesus that all of creation will be repaired. See, Jesus isn't asking, when Jesus calls us to come take our cross and follow him, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Nobody suffered more than Jesus has. And Paul and the apostles and and all of the Christians in the first century, and and hopefully us too, when we get the opportunity to suffer, there's a glory in it because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ, which is ultimately for the good of ourselves and for the world. Now, this is why Paul is willing to proclaim. That's why he's willing to go to prison He's there, he's urging everyone he can can talk to, put your trust in Jesus. Look and see what he has done. He suffered for you in your place so you could have eternity with Christ. That that ultimate purpose or the the ultimate happiness that you're longing for, you can't find that here. That's in the new heavens and new earth. And the only way to get there, the only way to have access to it is through Jesus. Paul was obsessed with the gospel. You could even say he was enchanted by the gospel. There was something about it that just captivated. There's no way he could just let it go. Like he knew, like, okay, if I want to live a life where I have to, can avoid prisons, just stop talking about Jesus. That was not an option for him. And I wonder, I wonder what our lives would look like. I wonder what our conversations would be like if we were just as enchanted by the gospel as the Apostle Paul. That we would be a gospel-obsessed people that just it rattles off our tongue. We've got to tell everybody about the redemption, about the wholeness, about the grace that's available to us in Jesus. And if we see it as big and beautiful as what it is, 
there comes with it a willingness to suffer. It's worth it. There's a glory in suffering for Jesus and for the good of the Quad Cities, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, whoever it would be, it's worth it. Now, if, if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus has suffered for you because he loves you so deeply, so deeply that he would give up his own life. He says, no greater love is there than this, than, than a man to give up his life for a friend. See, that's what Jesus did. He, he stood in your place, and by faith today, by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, you can cling on to that reality, and then you can know that that, that suffering that ought to scare us the most, that, that ought to be the most alarming, oh, death, where is your sting? It's not there. And for those of you who are in Christ, those who are Christians, you ordinary Christians doing life, Listen, God has saved you to do a work through you. God has given you grace for the benefit of other people. He's pursuing people who are far from him. Who Paul talks about this earlier, those who were far off, who were once far off, now have been right near. God is doing that. Those who are far off in the city. God is pursuing them, and he's pursuing them through faithful gospel people like you and me in our workplaces, in the gyms, at the bar, at the coffee shop, wherever you are, God is pursuing people. He's a missionary God. Suffering is the vehicle for the mission to move forward. And everything that we suffer in this life for the sake of Jesus will be paid back a hundredfold. Again, Paul says, listen, I can't even... It's not even worth comparing to the future glory that awaits. So it's with that we heed Paul's words when he says, he says, I ask you not to lose heart. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is a life that Christ calls us to. It's hard a life, Right? Come and die. <laughs> That's the call of discipleship. Come and die. But in dying, you find true life, true meaning, true significance, and ultimately true happiness. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus that has come to us. He didn't come as a king, but as a servant. He didn't come with power, but in weakness. He came to serve. And in his serving, he suffered a great deal for us. And this morning, we come to the Lord's table and we're reminded of the suffering that Jesus took in our place, that it was his body and his blood that was broken and shed so that we could be made whole, that it's, it's by this, by Christ, our wounds are healed. So God, would you help us that even, even in this meal, would it, would it be a sustaining meal that if we are in the midst of suffering for Jesus, that you would give us the power, a supernatural power that's conveyed through this meal to keep going, to not lose heart. And then even as we come to the table, for those of us who maybe we just don't know what suffering for Christ looks like yet, or, or, or maybe we haven't even opened up our life to that, but this would be a reminder of, of the depths and the lengths that Jesus has gone to for us. And at, at least make us willing to step into suffering when it comes. God, we ask that you would do a mighty work in this church and help us to know that, that the gospel advances through suffering, that we would find joy in it, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 
because the grace of God is so strong. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.